I'm Caleb Isley. And I'm Nina Volato. This is How the Church Works. A deep dive into the inner workings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and why you should care. In this episode, we're talking about one of the most controversial figures in Adventism, Ellen White. We'll talk about her writings, the ways we use them and misuse them, and who she really was as a human being. This is part two. After nearly 71 years as a leader and prophetic messenger in the Adventist movement, Ellen White passed away on July 16, 1915. Here's a recap. Because the Adventist Church did not totally hinge on Ellen White as a person or a prophet, unlike many other religions, Adventists kept busy trying to live out the mission of the Church and were not focused on finding the next prophet. Many things had changed in the last nearly 80 years of Adventism. Jesus had not come yet. Adventism had become more institutional, with many schools and churches all over the world. The church was not listless without Ellen White. But questions about if there would be a successor of Ellen White's prophetic gift were swirling about. Then walks in Margaret Rowan. This is probably one of the, for me, one of the most interesting stories, uh, human interest with drama and everything else. One of our frequent guests, Michael Campbell, told us this story. One that sounds like something you'd hear on a true crime podcast, not an Adventist history class. But there's a young lady by the name of Margaret Rowan, a recent convert. And so she says, I'm the true prophetic successor. Ellen White's dead. And so I am her successor. And so church leaders did what church leaders always do. Not necessarily a bad thing, but they established a committee to investigate, right? And so the members of that committee are reading what she's written, hearing testimonials of people that had seen her in vision, all of these kinds of things. But the question was, was she really a prophet or not? At first it was, well, maybe, but as time went on, there began to be these increasing red flags, shall we say? where she started claiming things like some dramatic claims about her ancestry. And so church leaders are like, well, let's check that out. And so they went to visit some people who were supposed to be her relatives. And then the night before they're all staying, she skips town and leaves and they knock on the door at the address where she says these people that are supposed to back up her story. And they're like, yeah, we've never heard of her before. As there's more questions, she starts making increasingly dramatic claims. Like if you check the files of the Ellen G. White estate, you will find a letter written by Ellen White stipulating that I am her prophetic successor. And sure enough, they go into the files and they find this letter signed by Ellen White saying Margaret Rowan is her prophetic successor. Except for there's a couple problems. First, the paper was the wrong size. The typeface and the perforated edges didn't match the other documents in the file. It didn't even have an official document file number. And Ellen White's signature was clearly a forgery. I mean, it was a really bad job at a forgery, but it did get put there, which raised a question of how did that get into the letter file? To make a long story short, 
one of her strongest supporters found out that Margaret Rowan was stealing from her own organization. And so he became disenchanted and he was about to come clean to church leaders and say, hey, you know, I'm the person that broke into the White Estate vault and put the letter there. Uh, and so Margaret Rowan knows now that he's not loyal to her. And so she arranges with two of her friends. Uh, and he was a physician and calls him to a motel room. And once he knocks on the door and he steps inside. Then the supposed prophetic successor, Margaret Rowan, and her two accomplices hit him on the head with a pipe. And literally, there's this altercation that's going on. They're fighting. He's fighting for his life, you know. And they make enough noise that the person in the adjoining room calls the police to say, hey, something's going on. And the police show up and they find Margaret Rowan dragging his body in a burlap bag. And they're carrying shovels as they're going through the parking lot. And it's a three-day manhunt to find Margaret Rowan and her two friends. So you can just imagine, supposed Adventist prophetess, you know, eventually she gets arrested, uh, attempted murder. And this is headline news in the New York Times, the LA Times, all the big newspapers across the United States. So this is, this is quite a scandal that's going on. Anyway, she's arrested and she's tried. She makes bail. And the trial's going on for this, what, what took place. Then what they didn't know is, or didn't notice is that they had actually poisoned him. So the guy dies. So now it's actually a murder trial, but by the time they go to rearrest her, she's skipped town and is never seen from again. I've done some research on this and I, it seems like she made off, looks like she went under a pseudonym and lived in Florida, the best I can tell, and then is buried on a family plot up in Pennsylvania. So she, yeah, she got away with it. But it's also a, a reason why I, I think a lot of Adventists wanted to believe that there was a prophetic successor, right? They wanted to believe it so badly that they were willing to believe Margaret Rowan despite all these red flags until hopefully at least most of them were finally able to see kind of through that, hey, this person, you know, by your fruits, you shall know them. You know, the biblical passage in Matthew 7, well, clearly trying to kill somebody is not a fruit of the Spirit. And I see just such a world of contrast between someone like Margaret Rowan, who's trying to dupe people and get their money and trying to control and manipulate people versus someone like Ellen White, who constantly is saying, hey, don't take my word for it. Test my writings according to scripture. And certainly she is a human being and made mistakes and everything else. But you can see the overall trajectory of her life where she's trying to live a genuine Christian life. And certainly she didn't try to murder anyone. It, you know, someone ought to make a movie about this. <laughs> Margaret Rowan was not a prophet. And thus far, the Adventist Church has never claimed anyone after Ellen White had the gift of prophecy. But we've spent the last hundred years or more trying to figure out how exactly Ellen White's gift worked. And a few years after her death, this was a key point of discussion at a Bible conference, a discussion forum including all the Bible teachers and theologians in the Adventist Church. The 1919 Bible Conference is an important part of Adventist history, one we're still realizing the significance of today. Sometimes history takes place and you know it's something that's really momentous. Like for me, when I was a student in seminary, 
September 11 happened. My dad was there. He survived. You know, it's one of those stories that in our family, we're like, you know, it, this changed the world. People know exactly where they were when they first heard that this happened. My parents' generation earlier, it was the first person landing on the moon, Neil Armstrong. There's these moments everybody knows and says, hey, that's history being made. But there's also history that's made that you don't realize that it's of historical significance. And that's really the story of 1919 because of all the people that went there, none of them really knew as they were participating in this Bible conference that this would be something that would be of great significance to the church and the development of Adventist theology. This is the first time after Ellen White's death that the church was able to meet together like this due to World War I. The church was facing a crossroads. It was a moment of change for the whole world, not just Adventism. After such a horrific, all-encompassing war, society was looking for moral clarity. This is the time when Christian fundamentalism was on the rise in the United States. And that can be seen at the 1919 Bible Conference too. But as they're debating them, they begin to appeal to authority. How do we solve our differences? How do we disagree with one another over Bible prophecy and prophetic interpretation, all of these things? How do we disagree? And as they're going along doing that, they say, well, wait a minute, let's use Ellen White. So one person will come and say, hey, this is how Ellen White interprets this and someone else will disagree. And so not only are they starting to disagree about the Bible, they're also starting to disagree about how to interpret Ellen White. And so this is very, very significant. In fact, the different camps, as they're disagreeing with one another, they begin to start using labels or names for one another. The progressives versus the traditionalists, or sometimes we might say the liberals versus the conservatives. So. To my knowledge, this is the very first time in our Adventist past that people are starting to use those kinds of labels to describe or self-differentiate one another as they're debating. And as they disagreed, they began to polarize and push each other farther apart. So really the significance of 1919 is we begin to see different ways of interpreting Ellen White and those differences, that polarization that's beginning to take place within Adventism. When we talk about these labels, liberal versus conservative or progressive versus traditional, especially in the church, a certain picture comes to mind. Usually we ascribe one of those labels to a certain age group. Older people tend to seem more conservative and younger people tend to seem more liberal. But talking with Michael about this period in the Adventist church, those stereotypes just don't fit. The progressives, or what we might call the liberals, they tended to be the people that were older. They had worked closely with Ellen White. They had a more flexible view of inspired writings. Instead of it being rigid and narrow, they were, you know, hey, we need to adapt. Maybe we need to update things. Several of the people that were prominent at the 1919 Bible Conference were well-noted for their scholarship, like W.W. Prescott. He was one of the people Ellen White turned to when she needed to revise her classic book on Bible prophecy, The Great Controversy. And so she goes, hey, I need some better historical sources. Can you help me out? 
And so he had worked closely with Ellen White, knew that her way of, of how inspiration worked as God's prophetic messenger wasn't that she was some kind of manual typewriter where she just sat down and then God, God kind of energized her and she boom, 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 it just came out of the typewriter. But rather, God would inspire the ideas. Sometimes she would see pictures and then she would struggle. But And the Holy Spirit would have to help her, but she would try to write it out. She'd write it out and sometimes have, having to revise it, sometimes many times. And so you see this process that's going on. And the more conservatives or the traditionalists were very influenced by another historical movement, or they like to call themselves actually the fundamentalists. So again, today, sometimes we'll call someone a fundamentalist, like they're really in a pejorative kind of way. We're not talking about it in that way. We're talking about it as actually a religious movement in American history. And it's a strong reaction to several movements going on within American Christianity, the rise of modernism, the idea that humans can solve all their problems, the historical critical treatment of the Bible where we can just kind of dissect the Bible and maybe or maybe not inspired, you know, miracles, kind of skeptical of miracles. And so what the fundamentalist did, hey, those people are questioning the divine inspiration of the Bible. We're going to defend the Bible no matter what. So the fundamentalists tend to be a very militant and some of the strongest fundamentalists began to push for a very what we call inerrancy, this idea that every word of the Bible is inspired, that there are no mistakes. And so this very narrow and rigid view of inspiration. And this becomes the crux, which the two different groups at 1919 are disagreeing, is over inspiration or inspired writings. And so it's interesting because the traditionalists or the conservatives are actually the innovators that are very influenced by the rising fundamentalist movement and trying to push this narrow, rigid way of interpreting inspired writings on Ellen White. So that's really the most significant crux or difference between these two sides at the 1919 Bible Conference. And we can see these factions still exist today, particularly around hermeneutics. At the 1919 Bible Conference, it was about how to interpret Ellen White, but that's part of a greater conversation and how we interpret the Bible. Really, it comes down to hermeneutics and how we interpret inspired writings. I think this has always been the great question and great challenge that we faced, whether it's in 1919 or in the present day. How we use inspired writings makes a difference. And we use a fancy word (laughs) as theologians. It's called hermeneutics. It comes from this Greek word, hermeneuo, or basically, how do we interpret and I always like to explain to my students that, you know, we all practice hermeneutics. My wife and I practice hermeneutics, right? She sends me to grocery store to find something for her and, and I bring back the wrong thing. And, and she's like, but I told you and well, I thought it was something different, right? Well, communication doesn't always fit neatly. Anybody that's married or in a relationship or has kids or parents, communication can be messy sometimes, right? So acknowledging that and recognizing that we need to better understand how we approach inspired writings uh, matters. And, and I think in a tangible way, the way hermeneutics is playing out, I think in the last 10, 20 years, it's taken the, on the debate of gender in the church. But I think moving forward, it's going to be much more focused on theology. And I think this idea of last generation theology and perfectionism, I'm seeing a strong resurgence of that in the Adventist church around the world. And so I see that 
personally as probably the crux or where we'll likely see moving forward within Adventism, trying to deal with and understand what is last generation theology and what does it mean to be ready when, when Christ comes? Do I make Christ come? by making myself perfect. And I think that's clearly Ellen White was against that. She didn't believe that because really the second coming is all about Jesus. We're saved by Jesus, but yet there will be a last generation who reflect God's love. You know, it's not because of their good works, but it's because of their proclamation of the everlasting gospel, Revelation 14, that they are the generation that most clearly understands God's love and grace, like no generation ever before in human history. So yeah, that last generation, Jesus is going to come. Uh, and so we need to clearly understand what that is, what that means. But, you know, we need to make sure that we also don't add baggage on there, which I see as superimposing this last generation theology, this rigid way of interpreting inspired writings, placing myself at the center of the salvation narrative. Christ will come, but it's not because I'm perfect or good enough. It's because I'm fully surrendered. And God's people at the end of time are fully surrendered to Jesus and because Jesus is perfect enough. After Ellen White's death, the big question about her writings and prophetic gift was how inspiration worked. But later, it was whether or not Ellen White was inspired at all. So the plagiarism charge, as I mentioned, originates with Dudley M. Canwright. He claimed that Ellen White used other sources and therefore could not have been a prophet. And if God was indeed inspiring her, she wouldn't need to use anything else he would just speak directly to her. And in fact, he would dictate the exact words to her. That's how God speaks, dictation. Ken Wright's entire edifice of criticism is based on a false understanding of revelation inspiration. Second Peter 1, 21. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible makes clear we do not believe in verbal inspiration. It teaches thought inspiration. God moves upon the servant and his infusion of the Holy Spirit and his messages, the servant is allowed to share those within the language structure and within his, own, his or her own humanity. If we were to apply Canwright standard, many biblical prophets would fall. There are prophets in scripture who used other materials as a part of their messages from God. Ellen White held to that same view. If someone else said it better, sometimes she would say, that's exactly what I believe God is trying to say. Now, to me, that's in keeping with the scripture that every good and perfect gift, everything good in the world comes from God. It is in keeping with the fact that there's nothing new under the sun. The idea of plagiarism, the word plagiarism and the idea of plagiarism, again, is a present understanding being projected back into another time. During Ellen White's time, there was something called literary borrowing. That is, scholars and others did not believe that a thing was just their own. They didn't have that concept of, dude, if I come up with it, don't touch it. That's not the same thing. Scholars often borrowed from each other in order to make a point. Ellen White's understanding was that it is not just the thing written that is inspired. 
the assembly is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The assembly of the system is inspired. So for instance, our health message, pieces of it, even during Ellen time, are in different places. But the system of those eight laws, that's unique, and that system is what God showed Ellen White. Accusations of plagiarism started while she was alive, but they experienced a resurgence in the 1980s. Here's Dwayne Esmond. So, in 1980, a Long Beach pastor by the name of Walter Ray claimed in his book called The White Lie that Ellen White plagiarized some 80 to 90 percent of her books. And he went through his books to, uh, in his book, to determine by words and sourcing and other things that she had done this. The church began to respond to it. The Seventh-day Adventist Church began to respond to Walter Ray's accusation. It was a huge controversy in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I mean, it sucked up all the air, all into the 80s, into the 90s. And it has only, you know, abated in the last few years to some degree, but its tentacles are still with us because he directly challenged the authority of Ellen White's writings. Now, Ellen White was a well-read person. Ellen White had over 3,000 volumes in her own personal library, unheard of for a female of her time. She was well-read. So she would borrow certain things and write them as a part of what God was showing her. This charge of plagiarism was serious. So the church took it seriously. The General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists hired an outside law firm to audit Ellen White's writings to see if there was enough evidence to charge her with plagiarism, hypothetically. Because when it's frequent or egregious enough, plagiarism is a misdemeanor. And in some states, it's a felony. And they were clear in their response in that study that no, you could not charge her with plagiarism. She did not plagiarize. Not only that, they went further. They said that it is a minuscule portion of her writings that even bear any resemblance to things that were pulled out of other places. Someone did a study on Ray's book and found that Walter Ray's book, The White Lie, was erroneous in multiple parts of it. When Ray was contacted and urged by that study to correct his book, he refused. His reason for not correcting it was that even the Bible has errors. Ray has all these other things that are interesting about him and how he sees the faith. And basically, what we say from the white estate is the plagiarism charge is really not legit. Because number one, people need to have an understanding of Ellen White's time and what literary borrowing was during her time. And number two, that which she did borrow amounts to a minute percent of her entire corpus. Ellen White's writings are also sometimes compiled into volumes by subject. An example of this is a compilation I received during my high school graduation called Messages to Young People. Ellen White certainly supported compilations during her lifetime and made provision for them after her death. But for me, one of the most problematic compilations is Messages to Young People. 
done in 1929, again, taking little snippets of her writings and then putting little headings on them. And a big part of that compilation is focused on behavior. It's focused on Christian perfection. And it gives the idea, instead of we're converted and out of that conversion, our behavior changes. Instead, you hardly see Christ at all in that compilation. And it's this basically list of all the things you can or can't do in order to make yourself perfect, right? And it's not surprising that you know the person that was compiling the book, he and his secretary, as they were compiling this, turns out that they were having an affair. So he's struggling with sin himself as he's trying to, you know, focus on this very perfectionistic kind of behavior. So understanding this, I think it's really important. You know, if you really try hard enough, Ellen White wrote so much, you can make her say what you want to. That's the danger, right? Take a little snippet there and snippet there. If you take her out of context, you lose that Christ-centered focus that Ellen White had. And and even her strongest admonitions, and I've read a lot of her unpublished letters and my research through the years, but she always, every single one of those admonitions, no matter how harsh or stern it was, she comes around and says, you know, Jesus still loves you. There's hope for you. That's the danger is we just take all the little snippets of admonition without the Christ-centered focus and context. This deal with proof texting, elevating Ellen White's writings above the Bible. These are huge challenges. Compilations can often be used to harm others, especially when they are missing the important context needed to understand a particular passage. But when done correctly and used in their full potential, compilations can be an important tool in exploring theological questions, particularly from a historical perspective. Here's Dwayne again. I have red book welts on my head, you know, from people bashing me over the head or bashing others over the head with the books, with Ellen White's writings. And compilations were a mighty tool in the hand of wrong people to bring about change or curb behavior. Compilations can also, you know, they're great, but they can also have very detrimental effects on people. Ellen White made clear in her last will and testament that compilations of her writings were to be prepared by the white estate, by those caring for her writings. So it's in her will that they should be done. She said there are times when the church has specific issues or specific challenges, and there is a need for an assemblage of my writings to address a specific concern. And I'm saying, do it. What usually happens when a compilation is done by the white estate is there is someone tasked with assembling all of the writings on a specific subject, everything. Then that person usually goes through and creates and groups them into specific thought bubbles, you might say. But then it is given to the white estate. Now, when it comes to the white estate, the white estate directors are going to read it and they're going to critique it and make changes to it. The right estate director is uh, in chief is going to do it as well. And then after all that process is done, then it is given to the trustees for them to read and for them to evaluate it carefully to make sure that it captures the entire breadth of Ellen White's writing on a specific kind of subject. Sometimes those compilations are not always handled perfectly. There's some, even today, that I think perhaps should be recast, maybe redone. 
because they're heavy in one area and may not be as heavy in another area and may require some balance, right? I recently helped to produce one called Principles for Christian Leaders. There's no way to include in that compilation everything that Ellen White said about Christian leadership. There's a book called Christian Leadership, right? So there is a challenge when reading a compilation, I think, to be quite honest, to not just take these this assemblage of the material, but especially when it's on a specific subject, if something piques your interest, I challenge the reader to go back to the original source and read all of that within its context. See the compilation as like the cliff notes pointing you to something, not as the final word on what she has said about a certain subject. I think if we were taught that way, I think it would have been so much more healthier for us. So I agree with you um, that they can be they can be really misused. Every generation has had to decide what they believe about certain traditions. And that's a big one facing young Adventists. Many of us have been victims of legalistic applications of Ellen White's writings and bad hermeneutics. Gen X, millennials and Gen Z are increasingly antagonistic or blasé toward her writings for this reason, even more than the baby boomers. She says God has given these writings for, for a very specific purpose. One, to comfort his people at the end of time, to help them to know there's a God who's in charge. You have a specific role and function. This is what you're supposed to be. Number two, it is to keep them from error, to help them not to err in their understanding of the scriptures and in their faithfulness to God. So where we mess up is when we think, okay, Ellen White should be our second Bible. No, 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 no. Ellen White's source of authority is the same. We believe that she is exercising the spiritual gift of prophecy as spoken of in Ephesians, as spoken of in Revelation 12, 17 and Revelation 19, 10. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Joel 2, 28 says that, that this gift will continue until the end of time. It doesn't end with Ellen White. God can still speak to people. He can still speak to his church. However, while we believe that the source of her authority is the same, its function is different. She functions very much like a non-canonical Bible prophet, like Samuel or like others who don't have writings necessarily, or there are others, Nathan, for instance, and others who don't have writings that are in the Bible, but their messages were still to God's people at specific times in specific situations, right? That is what we're getting at. That's kind of how Ellen White is functioning. Source the same, function different. She is a prophet. One writer calls her a prophet to scripture. She pushes people to the Bible. She should never be used. She should never be used as a substitute for scripture. The ratio should always be scripture first. Lesser light, greater light. Even if we do have a correct view of Ellen White's relationship with the Bible, or how inspiration works, or how her writings should be applied, sometimes it still feels outdated. Can a woman who's been dead for over a hundred years really have much to say about the world we live in? A world with spaceships and the internet, social media, retirement funds, and Netflix? Well, if she really is a prophet, then yes. 
and when you can actually learn about her life and the world she was writing in. When you go deeper into her whole body of work, instead of just going off the handful of quotes about health or tithe or whatever people use, you see that her writings do have a lot to say about the world we live in now and the kind of faith many people are craving. Of all the chapters in the Bible on which Ellen White has written the most, Isaiah 58 is the one. In that chapter, God says, you know, my people are wondering why it is that, you know, I'm not blessing them. Why it is that they're not receiving my plentiful showers of blessing in their lives. Well, it is because you are not doing justice. You are not loosing the bands of oppression. You are not helping the poor and the needy. You are not dealing your bread to the sick and the suffering. In fact, I'm going to turn the lights out on you. That's what the scripture says. Your light will not shine. I will not heal your diseases. I'm not going to bless you because you're not doing justice and righteousness in the world. You should read what Ellen White writes about that. Right. She says, in fact, this is the very work that Jesus Christ came to do in the in the scripture. Same word for righteousness and justice used interchangeably. Mishpat Sedekah. You can't be righteous and not be just. You can't be just and not be righteous. So when we talk about how do we approach these times, should we get in? Should we get out? How should we operate? Ellen White says, Get in. Get in wisely, but get in. She says that we should be careful about the movements that we become a part of. She does write about that. But Ellen White was a part of temperance movements. If you read Ellen White's statements against slavery, they are absolutely over the top. In fact, our pioneers come to understand America's role in prophecy based on how it treats slaves. And Ellen White comes to that. James White is writing about that. In fact, Jay and Andrews, she called our most ablest man, you know, the baddest man we have. Jay and Andrews wrote during the 1870s, 1880s, he said, listen, um, we have put the slavery issue and our response to it in a box called politics. And we are going to tell God at the judgment that, you know, it was politics. That's why we didn't intervene and we didn't do anything about it. Uriah Smith, 20-something years old, Uriah Smith in 1853 or somewhere around there writes a 30,000-word screed against slavery. That is devastating. I mean, he is withering in his criticism. So I feel like in so many ways, she is extremely relevant today. There are issues involving her statements on race that, are, for instance, are, are controversial. Well, she said that the races should not mix, should not marry. Ellen White said that, you know, you should only work for your race and you work for your race. After she wrote all that stuff about how these people are children of God and that, you know, all of that. How can she now talk about the races being apart? Well, the times were different. Her son, Edson White, went down on his the Morning Star boat and almost got killed several times in Mississippi. She's afraid. She's saying, and she writes this, that the Southern whites are not in a place where they can handle full-on evangelism in the South from us. They can't. And the people were saying, 
Uh, listen, we are the righteous and the true. Let's just go do it, man. We are the special ops of the Adventism. Let's go down to the South and let's make it happen. Put up a big sign. Tell them we're here to, to save these black people and fall in line. Right. Ellen White's like, no, 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 no. It's much too dangerous. We can't do that. It is better that 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 African-Americans that black people work for a time to evangelize their folks and that Caucasian people, white people work to evangelize. And while God does not have a color line, we must be mindful of the times. So is she relevant? What I would say is her principle base, her application of pragmatism in the middle of crisis is something I believe to be always relevant. That's just one way that I think she's relevant. Her writings about prophecy and understanding the second coming of Jesus, I would say even more so the life of Jesus Christ, his ministry, steps to Christ, how to be in relationship with him, absolutely relevant today as ever. There's a lot of misconceptions about Ellen White, and those misconceptions get tied up into a lore that makes her feel inaccessible to so many. The main lesson we've learned from working on this project is that the people who founded the Adventist Church were human. They had human struggles, ones that aren't that dissimilar to what we experience today. She and James had major marital drama. That's one, okay? This is a part of Ellen White's life that I love. I do, I love the drama, I do, I, I, I admit it. And here's why. Because it makes her human, man. It makes them human, you know, humans of Adventism. Ellen White was one of them, Caleb. So here's, here's, why, here's why I love it. After James White had his strokes, he became very difficult to deal with. He was a difficult person. Ellen White says, you know what? I am going to go out on the road, James. I'm going to go do some ministry. <laughs> I'm going to go visit some camp meetings and stuff because I really need to get away from you. James, <laughs> James says, listen, don't say anything to me unless God has told you to tell me something. It's a real marriage, right? They have their disagreements about things. But their love for each other is strong. It is complete. They are very much in love with each other and supportive of the ministry together, even though their marriage had its ups and its downs. I mean, Ellen White said, you know, of James White after his death, there has not been a better man to ever trod shoe leather. She loved him. She had other suitors after he died. Who wanted to marry her? She was like, nah, James broke the mold. I'm sorry, it's James. They had a problem child. Edson White was the problem child, man. His father said, that boy is shiftless. He's lazy. You know, you can't trust him with any money. This child of ours is gonna kill us. Ellen White writes to him, man, pleading with him, son, you gotta stop. You, you gotta come around. And it's not until she writes this little tract in the 1890s, Our Duty to the Colored People. Ellen White 
writes that track. Edson White reads it and he is transformed by his mother's tract. He decides, this is my calling in life. This is my work. And Edson picks up that work and grabs his friend and builds a boat and takes his wife, gets his wife on that boat and goes into harm's way to share the gospel with some of the most backward people that you can ever find on the face of the earth. It's a painful ministry. He writes to his mother in Australia, Mom, I don't know if these people will ever be able to understand the truth. They have been so disfigured, so hurt. She writes back to him, son, be faithful. Stay at it. I'm going to send you some money so you can keep on doing it. Don't give up. Keep going. In the late 1890s, when the church fails to do what it's supposed to do, Ellen White tells them, her son, Edson White, had written a book called The Gospel Herald, and it was supposed to be sold and shared, and the proceeds go to the ministry in the South. The church had taken the money and moved the book off the project, chose another book. Ellen White said to the folks at the Review, sell me my son's book. Give it to me, and we will do the work that this church has failed to do. I don't want God to hold me responsible for what you have failed to do. That's Ellen White. Practical, dealing with real life. She buried two children. She was on the road a lot while those children were being cared for by other people. It hurt her, broke her heart. Am I doing the right thing? This ministry, I'm out here saving everybody else and my family is suffering. The point I'm making is what people don't see is Ellen White's humanity. And to me, it is the key that unlocks the door to who she really was and how God used her. And the reason why I love her humanness is because I can enter in that door because I'm very human like that. (laughs) And if God can overshadow and use a person so broken physically, so compromised in other ways, then he can use me. There's a lot more to Ellen White than many of us were led to believe. And there's a lot we weren't able to cover in this episode. We've linked some interesting resources on Ellen White in the show notes. Ellen White was a prolific writer, but she spent much of her time out in the field, meeting with local pastors and preaching at local churches. Her heart was with the people. The local church is the foundation of everything the Adventist church does, and while we spent a lot of this series looking at the big picture of the institutional church, for our next episode, we wanted to zoom back in. Next time on How the Church Works. Four churches, four different communities, four approaches to ministry. Works is hosted by Nina Villato and Kayla Beisley. Thank you to our guests this week for joining us, Dwayne Esmond from The White Estate and Michael Campbell. You can find bonus content for this episode on our website. It's howthechurchworks.com. This episode was written by me, Heather Moore, with help from Kayla Beisley, and it was produced by Heather Moore. Our episodes are edited and mixed by Nina Villato. 
Thank you to Michael Campbell for reviewing and fact-checking our episodes. Our logo design is by Brittany Colby. Website and social media by Chelsea Ernina. Thank you to our tech and equipment expert, Stephen Husett. The show is executive produced by Adam Fenner, Heather Moore, Kayla Beisley, and Nina Velado. Special thanks to the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. If you have something to say, please email us. It's hello at howthechurchworks.com.